Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. The joy of the Lord is what? Is your strength. Do you claim that this morning? That the joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, we go this morning from hope two weeks ago, peace last week, to joy today, and love next week. Which reminds me, next week we're going to be doing a memorial of those loved ones who have passed away during the past year. So if you have a name that you want to be remembered explicitly and verbally in the message next week, would you please let me know? I have a list, but when you mention names on a list that you have, you run the risk of leaving someone out. And so I'm going to ask you if you would let me know if you have a loved one that has departed and is with the Lord that you would like remembered next week, please let me know and we will include it. This morning it is about joy, and the joy of the Lord is not only your strength, but my strength as well. And I'd like to unpack that this morning, not from the Nehemiah passage, that's Nehemiah 8-9, but from Zephaniah, and what that says about the incarnation. I danced in the morning when the world was begun, and I danced in the moon and the stars and the sun, and I came down from heaven, and I danced on earth. At Bethlehem, I had my birth. Dance, then, wherever you may be. I am the Lord of the dance, said he, and I'll lead you all wherever you may be, and I'll lead you all in the dance, said he. That, of course, is a Christmas tune, not just a Christmas tune, but a song of joy by Sidney Carter, an English songwriter from uh, 1963. But it's based on an old tune, uh, Simple Gifts, that is a shaker tune, and an even older English carol, Tomorrow Shall Be My Dancing Day, which is probably drawn from an ancient medieval moral play out of England. And it continues then in the fourth stanza. I danced on a Friday when the sun turned black. It's hard to dance with the devil on your back. They buried my body and they thought I'd gone, but I am the dance, and I still go on. They cut me down, and I leapt up high. I am the life that'll never, never die. I'll live in you if you'll live in me. I am the Lord of the dance, said he. You know, when Carter wrote this, it's particularly inspiring that he did so because of what he thought of Jesus and the joy in Jesus' life. But a little unsettling, too, was he was also inspired by a statue that was on his desk, the statue of the Hindu god, Shiva. And you probably have seen that picture. You're familiar with it. Shiva has a dancing pose in the dance called the Nataraja, where, with the four arms extended and then dancing in this pose, he dominates the demon of ignorance. There are many of these stories in pagan myths. Terpiscore in Greek, one of the nine Greek muses, daughters of Zeus. She was over the 
She was the muse or she was the patron of choral song and dance. Amo no Uzume in Japanese culture, the Shinto goddess of the dawn and meditation and the arts and revelry and mirth. Baal Markov, a Canaanite god, Phoenician god of healing and dancing who inspired cultic dancing amongst the Canaanites. Asparamera, Cambodian celestial dancer who then came down from heaven and married the monk king Kambu, from whom then come the Khmer people, according to pagan myth. Perhaps it's because of these pagan associations with ritual dancing and mirth and paganism that we have an aversion to dance in the church. I think it has more to do with Victorian values that carried over into the 20th and the 21st century. What I'd like for us to think about today is that all of these other myths are just shadows of the real thing. For we know that God is the author of true mirthful joy. And he wants us to do what? He wants us to enjoy, to rejoice, but also to enjoy him and to enjoy his creation. But he's not a dispassionate God. He is not an impersonal God. When we speak about God's love, it's not just an activity. It is who he is, and it is a passionate love. God himself, I believe, experiences joy. He delights in his people. He celebrates our victories. And in our sadness and times of disaster, he mourns with us and weeps. But he's joyful. And the passage that we look at this morning from Zephaniah gives us an inside look at that. It's the 7th century B.C. in Judah. And the nation has vacillated over the century from reform to apostasy. Beginning in that century, Hezekiah had instituted great religious reforms and there was a revival only to be followed by the long and evil reign of his son Manasseh, who finally repented near the end of his life and restored worship of Yahweh. But his son, Ammon, returned to idolatry to be followed by his son Josiah, who reversed the apostasy of almost 60 years. But even in that time, in the 7th century, even though there was religious reform, there continued to be corruption in society beneath the surface, not just of the leaders, but of the people, and a residual of idolatry, even during that three-decade reign. And God was displeased. Zephaniah was prophesying after Isaiah and during Josiah's reign, just before Jeremiah and Habakkuk. And he prophesied against this cancerous sin that ran through society. You see, there was, a, uh, there was a veneer of religiosity, but just beneath the surface percolated evil and corruption. And it wasn't just Judah. It was the surrounding nations against whom Zephaniah prophesied. And he warned this. He said, the day of the Lord is coming. And the day of the Lord is going to bring, bring judgment on all of these nations. And yes, you too, Judah, we find this in chapter 1. And then judgment is going to come. We find in chapter 3. That judgment in chapter 3 verses 5 through 8 just precedes the passage that we look at this morning. And then he promised that he was going to purge Judah. And he was going to restore a righteous remnant that would come to rest and praise the Lord and return to the, the promised land. And then God would send his Messiah... And with the coming of the Messiah, there would be joy and praise. 
And I believe this passage this morning tells us it's more than just the joy of the people. It's more than just the joy that God gives his people. It is the joy of Jehovah God Almighty himself, for he is the source of all human joy. You see, it is the joy of the Lord himself that is being spoken about in this passage. Would you stand with me as we read from Zephaniah, the third chapter, from the word of God, beginning in verse number 14. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. And may God bless the reading of his word. Let's be seated. You know, the context of this, there's several passages in the Old Testament, of course, that we turn to at this time of year to think about the joy of God that we have experienced in the incarnation at Christmas time. Isaiah 52, often we turn to that. We're told to rejoice because how beautiful are the feet of those then upon the hills that come to bring the good news, the gospel of, of God. And Isaiah 54, shout for joy. And this was one of the great texts that launched the mission effort by Baptist in England in the early uh, 18th century in the, uh, by William Carey and the Baptist Missionary Society. Shout for joy. Extend the habitation of your tent. Extend the links of your cords and strengthen your stakes. Zechariah 2, a couple of key passages. Rejoice, for I, as it says here, will be in your midst. And then, of course, Zechariah, the ninth chapter. Rejoice, for your king comes. And how will he come? He will come riding on the foal of a donkey, on a young donkey. This passage today, I think, tells us, obviously, first, to rejoice. And not just one time, but four times. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice, and again I say rejoice, and again rejoice. And why? In verse number 15, because the Lord saves you. We have cause to celebrate because the Lord of all creation came down and was born as an infant and took on human flesh. God gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. The Lord saves you in verse 15. And then secondly, we rejoice because the Lord goes with you. He goes with us wherever we go. We find this in verses 15 and 16. And then finally, we rejoice because the Lord loves you. He loves us in verse number 17. So let's unpack this passage then. Looking then at verse number 14. Rejoice and again and again and again I say rejoice. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is pretty remarkable because even at a time when things seemed not to give cause for rejoicing, 
When in a time when Zephaniah has just prophesied that they are going to go through disastrous times, God's judgment is going to come upon them, then he says in verse number 14, they're to rejoice. Judah looks at Israel. In the previous century, they had been obliterated by the Babylonians, the northern ten tribes. Society around them in Judah is corrupt. God's punishment is threatened. The day of the Lord is coming. It's imminent. The Babylonians have marshaled their forces and are a threat on their border. And still, he gives hope. In verses 9 through 13, he has said this, I am going to restore Judah. I am going to bring back a remnant, and they're going to praise God, and they're going to have rest in the land. And then there are four imperative verbs that are given here. Shout for joy. This is really an invocation. It is sing for joy. Call the troops together. Call the people of God together. And then he says shout in triumph. This is a cry of celebration. Basically a war cry commemorating victory. It's very much like Hewitt's hymn that we love to sing, often at funerals, when we all get to heaven. When we all get to heaven, what a day of what? Rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and what? Shout the victory. Charles Wesley put it a little differently. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the what? Triumphs of His grace. This is what we are called to do in Zephaniah. And then he talks about rejoice at the end of that verse, to have an attitude of gladness, not just with the mouth, but from the heart, to exult with exuberant expression, to rejoice with all your heart, from the leb, from the heart, from the soul, from the very innermost part of your being, to really mean it. And of course, the biblical parallels to this in the New Testament, Paul says to the Philippians, rejoice and what? And again, I say, rejoice. In the Psalms, this is the day that the Lord has made, I will what? I will rejoice and be glad in it. And we do this from our innermost being. So he then exhorts the people to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Why? For three reasons. First of all, in verse number 15 at the beginning, you see the Lord saves you. That is why God sent his only begotten son as savior to save a lost and dying world. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you, he says. And be glad in it. He has cleared away your enemies. Salvation comes in two forms in this verse. First of all, salvation from what? Surprisingly to the world today, because the world doesn't understand this from God's wrath. And then secondly, he saves us from our enemies. From the wrathful judgments that are proclaimed against our sin. The day of wrath is coming, Zephaniah has said. The day of the Lord is coming in chapter 1. He unpacked that in verses 4 through 9. And then he reiterates it at the beginning of chapter 3. On two occasions in this prophecy, he has already said that the day of the Lord is coming. There, there is a sense of dread then for Judah's disobedience and guilt. There's no other way to put it. The Lord God Almighty is at war with his people because they're idolatrous. They're immoral. They're corrupt. 
And the severity of his punishment in the day of the Lord is going to be beyond what had happened with the Assyrians against, against Israel. The Babylonian threat is impending on their borders. Dispersion and captivity is in their future. They are under a national sentence of death. The wrath of God. In British justice, they no longer have the death penalty. But still the justice will take a black cap into the courtroom with them. Reminiscent of the days when there was capital punishment. And you have heard before, I'm sure on some movie the pronunciation of the sentence of death as the judge then would put the black cap on top of his wig and he would say, it is the sentence of this court that you shall be taken from this place to the prison from whence you came and from there to a place of execution where you shall be hanged by the neck until what? Until dead. And then it closes. May God have what? Mercy on your soul. This isn't a message about the death penalty and whether we support it or not. But it is a message about the wrath of God that the society today around us does not understand. This morning, Zechariah, near the beginning of the worship service, prayed a prayer of what? Of confession. We take seriously that we are under the sentence of death for our sin. The wrath of God against sin will be meted out. But thanks be to God, we can come to him and we can confess our sin. And if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is what? He is just to forgive us of all of our sin and to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. And for this we do what? We rejoice. We as the people of God rejoice for his forgiveness. We are no, un no longer under the wrath of God. This is lacking. This is absent in our culture today. There is no mourning for sin. There is shamelessness for shameful acts throughout our culture. I suggest that where there is no sense of dread and no sense of guilt, it diminishes the sense of joy in our society. It's not joy that people experience out there, really. They do not know the depth of joy of the forgiveness of God. But now what has happened, you see? The Lord has taken away his judgment against you. He has turned aside the punishment. He has rescinded that sentence of death that we are under. And the Lord in his mercy has stopped the execution of his judgment. The textual proof of that is found in the previous passage, which we didn't read, verses 9 through 13. He has promised that he is going to purge them of their sin. He has promised that he is going to restore a remnant and they are going to rest and have joy and praise him. The consequences of this second point about, in the first part of the second point, about being delivered and saved from the wrath of God. For the unrepentant today, divine wrath is still to come. God is still at war against sin. And there are consequences for that sin. And there does not seem to be much of a sense of accountability or shame or guilt in our society. And I think that explains a lack of joy. For the repentant, God stops his warfare against his remnant. There is no longer any condemnation. What does Paul say in Romans the 8th chapter? He says what? Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, this gives us cause for great joy. 
for the removal of judgment and the curse against our sin. Joy to the world. How does the carol go? The Lord has come. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far, far as the curse is found. There is no corner of this earth where he will not forgive sin. No matter how dark it is, when people repent of their sin, great joy comes to this world through the removal of the curse. There's also salvation on another count. Salvation because the enemies that besiege us are defeated. Literally, it means that the Lord has cast away all the hostile forces that can do us harm. In verse number 17, a little bit later, it speaks about the victorious warrior. He is the Messiah who is to come. He is the mighty one. He is the valiant conqueror. He is the brave champion that has come into our midst. We celebrate him at this time of year as a babe incarnate. He grows into the full man, the full-blown divine warrior who is the brave champion of his people who comes to save and to deliver. Literally, God had promised that he would deliver Israel and Judah from their enemies. But eventually, the Assyrians defeated Israel. Eventually, the Babylonians defeated Judah. But he still promised that he would deliver them from their enemies and restore a remnant to Judah. Morally, he tells us that same thing today. All of the enemies that besiege us and tempt us and threaten us and that would take us into the court and accuse us and put us on indictment for our sin, Jesus Christ has defeated on the cross. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, he tells the Colossians, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way. He has nailed it where? To the cross. When he has disarmed the rulers, when he has disarmed the authorities, then he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. You see, he has put away the indictment. He has removed not only the wrath against us, but those that could come and be enemies in the end times against us. He has defeated them. And for this, we should be joyful. There's a second reason we should rejoice. And it's found in the latter part of verse 15 and then verse 16. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. And that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid of Zion, and do not let your hands fall limp. You see, we can rejoice because the Lord goes with us. He is in our midst. We celebrate that in the incarnation. The Son of God took on human form. He poured himself out. He did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but he poured himself out and he took on the form of human flesh. We have beheld his glory, the glory even of the only begotten of the Father who has come in our midst. You see, the Lord King, Zephaniah tells us, is in our midst. The Lord, he is the awesome and powerful King. The great passage that we often quote about worship from Isaiah the sixth chapter. Then I said, when I saw the Lord high and lifted up, what does Isaiah say? He says, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then he says this, for my eyes have seen the King. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. He has been in our midst. In Isaiah 44, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God beside me. 
He has come into our midst. This is what Zephaniah is telling us. It's the king himself. He doesn't just send an emissary, but the king has come himself in the form of Jesus Christ. Originally, the king's purpose was to be the foremost and valiant champion of the people. He was the strongest. He was the tallest. He was the champion of the people who went out and personally led the troops into battle. And this is what Jesus Christ has done. He himself has come. He has not sent a representative. This demonstrates his personal interest in our salvation. He risks everything for us as our king, the king himself. Previously, you see, he was standing in their midst and he was proclaiming, I am going to dispense my wrath upon you. I'm going to bring judgment upon you. But there's a second role of kings. The second role of kings is to bring justice, to render judgment. And in that judgment, he has said, I am going to have mercy. And now he comes and he stands in their midst and he commutes the death sentence and he brings salvation. And for this, we should be joyful. The King, the Lord King, Jesus is in our midst and he brings salvation. It points obviously to the incarnation prophesied by Zechariah. And we referred to that earlier. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's going to be in your midst. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And of course, that is the passage that we refer to often at this time of year to speak about the incarnation then and his coming into Jerusalem and, and proclaim, being proclaimed king. It's fulfilled in Christ's eternal title and in his position. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we know from Ephesians in the New Testament that he has sat down at the right hand of God where he has been elevated and rules over all creation. Joy to the world. The King has come in our midst and he reigns and everything in his subjection to him. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her what? Her King. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. You see, there are three consequences of the Lord coming in our midst. There's no more disaster. There is no more fear. And there's no more discouragement. What does it say here? We fear disaster no more. It literally means you will fear no more evil. No longer the consequences of our evil are punished. The wrath of God has been removed and eternal death has been displaced. Life, this isn't saying that there's not going to be evil around us. It's not, going to, it's not saying that we're not going to be tempted. It's not saying that there are not going to be any problems in life. But what it is saying is that life for those who follow Jesus Christ does not end in disaster. You see, evil cannot stand in the presence of God. Evil cannot stand in the presence of our advocate who will stand forth and then say that the sin has been removed from those who have followed me. It follows David's promise, of course, in the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I what? Fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff. They have comforted me, comforted me. We fear no evil. We do not have to be afraid. 
No longer do we have to be afraid when we stand in his presence because he has then established peace with us. You see, isn't it interesting? In most of the accounts that we speak about at this time of the year, at Christmas time, fear is mentioned, isn't it? But in a positive way. When the angel comes to Joseph in Matthew, the first chapter, the first thing the angel says to, to Joseph is what? Don't be afraid. Do not fear. When he comes to Zacharias in, the, in Luke, the first chapter, and talks about then the coming birth of his son, John, who's going to be John the Baptist, the first thing the angel does is says, do not fear. When he comes to Mary, and then he proclaims then the birth of the Son of God, that she is going to be the Christ bearer, he says to Mary, do not fear. And of course, the angels, <laughs> when they come upon the shepherds, what's the first thing that the lead angel says? Do not fear. You see, perfect love does what? It casts out fear. And then the third consequence, then, of its being in our midst is that we no longer should be discouraged. Don't let your hands go limp. Raise them in praise. Lift up your hands in joyful praise, he's saying. Encourage one another. Support one another. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, we are to strengthen the hands and, and strengthen the knees of those that are feeble. And we are to prepare for battle. We're to be strengthened and not let our hands drop. We're to raise them not only up in praise, but also to encourage each other and to prepare for the battle that is to come because he is in our, he is in our midst. And then finally, we rejoice because the Lord loves us. He loves you. In verse number 17, the Lord our God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. He will exult over you with joy. There have been echoes of joy in the cosmos from the very beginning. At creation, there was a star song. When the morning stars, Job says, sang together, all the sons of God, that is all the angels, shouted for joy. At Christ's birth, there are echoes of cosmic joy as the angels bring good tidings of great joy. To all people, and they praise God in the highest. At salvation, we're told in Luke, the 15th chapter, every time a lost one is brought into the kingdom of God, heaven does what? It rejoices. These are cosmic echoes of joy, but they pale in comparison to God's own joy. You see, this passage tells us that He personally, God Himself, Jehovah Elohim, Creator God, covenant Lord, expresses joy for his beloved. And who are his beloved? The remnant. Today, the church. And there's a fourfold expression of joy here. He will exalt. He will exalt with joy. He will rejoice with shouts of joy. This is saying that God is ecstatic in his joy. In this second set of phrases about joy, he will rejoice with shouts of joy. It literally means that he will dance with singing, daughters of Zion. The Lord is not only the Lord of the dance, he is the Lord who sings and dances and exults over us. In the Old Testament, we see this. 
In Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, it says that he rejoices over and blesses those that he has delivered. In Isaiah 62, he rejoices as the bridegroom over the bride, and we know who the bride is, and so God will rejoice over you. As redeemer of the remnant, he rejoices. After the Babylonian captivity, the remnant returned, the remnant of Judah returned, and Ezra then, in the book of Nehemiah, Ezra is instructing them in the law, and all of a sudden, the people come under great conviction, and they repent of their sin, and they mourn, and they weep, and then God responds to their repentance with joy. What does he say? And here it is. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn, do not weep. For all the people are we- were weeping when they heard the words of the law. And then God said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him that has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I believe what that passage is saying is it's not just something that that the Lord gives us, the joy, and he does that. But it's the fact that the Lord himself is rejoicing. He is the Lord of the dance. This is speaking about the joy of the Lord himself. It's talking about God being joyful because his people have repented. He looks upon his people who repent and return to him, and he has great joy. His heart dances and he exalts over us. C.S. Lewis put it this way. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of dream, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The Lord has joy in us, in his people. And he will be quiet in his love. You see, the war cry of God's wrath has been stilled. And he has, as he has been, as as his son has appeased his wrath for our sin. And he has restored the objects of his love, the remnant. And just as he rested at the end of creation, he rests as he works out his redemption. This speaks about the wordless adoration of God himself. His heart dances and his love settles upon us. And there's a balance between this excitement and exultation that he exhibits and this love that he has for us, this deep, deep abiding love that is constant. It's more than the merciful love that we usually find in the Old Testament. Hesed, the mercy of God. It's deeper than that, the love that is spoken about here. This love, this deep, quiet love that he has for his people in Zephaniah is the word Ahaba. It's the intimate, marital kind of love that is expressed of Jacob's love for Rachel. It's the deep and abiding kind of conjugal love that Hosea expresses for his estranged wife. And we're uncomfortable with hearing God loving us like that, but he does. It's a deep and abiding, pure love. You see, God loves his people, not only because he loves his people, but God loves because he loves to love them. The Father's love 
shared and poured out joyfully by his son. At the incarnation, we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. We know where the story goes. What was it? Why did he go to the cross? We know. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down, and then he sat down at the right hand of God, at the throne of God. You see, the deep, deep love of Jesus expresses the joy of the Father and the victory over sin and death. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free. This amazing, quiet, and deep love of God, the holy, pure God, that delights in saving a sinful people. You see, the King and Lord of all creation takes joy in this fact. He who is holy and above all sin and, and is untouched by it and untainted by it loves his subjects who are mired in sin, and he loves to redeem them. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, should die for me? Amazing love. I know it's true. And it's my joy to honor you in all I do to honor you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. But it's not just a commodity that he gives you. It's not just an emotion you feel. The only reason that we can experience that joy is because it is the joy of God himself who exalts and rejoices and praises the fact that you have repented of your sin and you have come into his kingdom and the kingdom of God rejoices with him whenever a lost one is found. Would you pray with me? Father. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.